1: Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Better to get thirty, thirty. to get thirty, to get twenty, twenty, twenty. to get twenty, twenty. to get fifteen, 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 fifteen.
0: Just fifteen bucks a month. So Give it a try at mintmobile.com/slash-switch. Forty-five dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited, more than forty gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: The Emperor Nero, one of the most infamous figures of antiquity. But did the early Christians associate Nero with the Antichrist mentioned in the New Testament, particularly the beast in Revelations? Joining me to sort the fact from the fiction is Shushma Malik. Shushma is a professor from the University of Roehampton and she has recently written a book all about Nero's portrayal as the Antichrist in Christian literature and indeed throughout history. And this was a fascinating chat. We first of all look at Nero's relationship with the Christians and then we explore how this association with the Antichrist was invented by 3rd, 4th and 5th century Christian writers. And then we go on to the 18th and 19th centuries where this association was revived and how it spilled over into the 20th century and a famous Hollywood production called Quo Vadis. Here's Shushma. Shushma, it is great to have you on the show. Great to see you again.
0: Thank you. It's lovely to see you as well.
1: Now, this, pardon the pun, is one hell of a topic.
0: (laughs) It really is. Yeah, it doesn't get much more apocalyptic.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, Nero and the Antichrist, this association, you would argue this was a link that was invented later and then also later, later revived.
0: Yes, yes, exactly. So I think this is a idea about Nero that really came to being fully fledged in about the third century AD. So as the Roman Empire was sort of getting towards um, its later period after the what we would call the heyday of sort of the second century. And then revived, like you say, in the 19th century, when we start to find the idea of Nero as the Antichrist popping up in, well, French and British literature, actually, in particular, as a way of understanding the Antichrist that was going against kind of anti-papal rhetoric that was quite prevalent at the time in the mid-19th century.
1: Wow. So let's have a talk first about Nero and the Christians during his reign. So in the in the mid-first century AD, What is the Christian population in Rome? How significant are they at this time?
0: So we don't have any concrete sort of numbers, unfortunately. That's, as you know, true of ancient history generally. But um, we know that there was a population in Rome. So, for example, um, Paul, in in his letters, writes to the Romans. um, Included in the Bible is Paul's letters to the Romans. So we have an idea that there was a congregation, if you like, and don't think of this as sort of a physical church building where people could go to congregate. It's more a group at this point of Christians in Rome. We certainly know that the bigger populations of Christians were in the East. So, of course, Christianity started in the East, in Judea. So there were some in the West um, and in Rome at this point, but we're not talking about a great number in the first century when Nero was reigning.
1: So they're quite a small group at this time, we can presume. And how do the Romans in Rome at this time, how do they consider the Christians?
0: So we don't really have any contemporary evidence. By that I mean we don't have any accounts from the mid-first century of people talking about, uh, of, of, you know, pagan Romans, as it were, talking about what they thought about the Christians or or those sorts of things. What we do have is the testimony of later Romans, so mid-second century the 130s-ish, 120s, 130s-ish AD. And that's mainly a Roman historian named Tacitus. And this is how we know about what Nero did with the Christians as well, um, because Tacitus writes about uh, Christians being in Rome in the mid-first century AD under Nero, and that people thought of these Christians as a superstition, basically. So you had the religion of Rome uh, in Latin, religio, Um, So that was your Roman cults and you know uh, sacrifices, the festival calendar, all of those sorts of things. But then you also had a superstitio. The superstitio or superstition was Christianity because it came from the east, and also um, because it didn't want to sit within religio. It didn't want to kind of be another cult that you could practice worship of alongside other cults. The idea of of having just one cult uh, for it being, you know, just one um, one religion that you followed was not particularly conducive to how the Romans thought of religion at this point. So Christianity sat outside of this and and that's true of Judaism as well. Judaism sat outside of it. But I think perhaps one of the differences at this point is that Judaism was very happy to sit outside of it within small communities doing what they wanted to do. Whereas Christianity was more concerned particularly later on, um, trying to get people to follow Christianity. Um, so conversion was more of a Christian attribute than that you know, we would necessarily think of as tied to the, the Jewish sect. So There's sort of suspicion about about Christians, um, according to Tacitus at this time, and certainly by his time in the mid-2nd century, um, early to mid-2nd century, that superstition we see elsewhere as well. So one of his friends is a Roman politician um, named Pliny, Pliny the Younger, and he is made governor of a province in the east called Bithynia. And when he goes over to Bithynia, he writes a letter back to the then emperor Trajan saying, I've come across this group of Christians and I'm not quite sure what to do with them. Um, you know, whether them practicing Christianity is enough to bring legal action against them and, you know, whether that's not enough or or whether the fact that they're you know, causing riots or causing problems, should I be, what should I be doing, basically? So these questions are are coming up at this point and Trajan's response is perhaps quite a good one. It's sort of don't ask, don't tell. Um, If they're not bothering anyone and no one's complaining, leave them alone. People start complaining, then, you know, we can think of doing something on them for the grounds of breaking the peace, that kind of thing.
1: That's interesting. But so 50 years earlier, there are still also question marks appearing about what the christians are about how they can fit into roman society emerging in rome
0: oh absolutely yes so so there's understandings and misunderstandings about this cult so um tacitus recognizes them as a sort of offshoot of judaism as having some connection to judaism which does demonstrate an understanding um certainly at least but he he's also not quite sure where they fit and, and and what they're doing but he does say that that you know other romans don't particularly like them they're, they're kind of people who are a community in and of themselves and and that that you know it's not very sociable
1: <laughs> well when do we first hear about nero coming into contact with his community within itself
0: Well, that's it. It's not until the second century that we come across this. So it's Tacitus, in fact, is our earlier source for Nero um, and the Christians. There are three kind of historical biographies that we still have of Nero. And There would have been others, it's just unfortunately they don't survive. So Tacitus was writing, like I say, in sort of the early to mid second century AD under the emperor Trajan, probably, and, and perhaps a bit earlier. Similarly, a rough contemporary of his was a biographer named Suetonius. And then we have another source from a bit later called Cassius Dio who's writing in the late second century so about 50 60 years later under the Emperor Commodus and afterwards. So Tacitus mentions that, well Tacitus is our best account for what happened with Nero and the Christians, by best I mean the longest (laughs) account um, of what happened to Nero and the Christians. Um, Suetonius mentions it very briefly All he says is during Nero's reign, there was a group called Christians in Rome and Nero punished them. And this was a good thing that Nero did. (laughs) Suetonius is not normally a big fan of Nero, but uh, at the beginning of his biography, he sort of lists some, some good things that Nero did. And that's one of them that he punished the Christians. He doesn't say he killed them. But he does say he punished them, we can infer from that what we would like, and we generally tend to infer from it that there was, you know, a punishment of death because of the account of Suetonius, which I'll come back to in just a second. The other thing to know about Suetonius is that he doesn't relate this to the fire in Rome, so he doesn't say the Christians were blamed for setting fire to Rome. Therefore, Nero punished them. He just talks about punishment in a fairly sort of short, abstract sense. Tacitus, on the other hand, does give us much more detail. So, as Tacitus tells us, in AD 64, there was a big fire in Rome, and 10 out of the 14 districts in Rome were kind of destroyed by fire, so it was, it was really brutal. Some people thought, because after the fire, Nero implemented this huge building programme, and most of it was very good, it was very sensible. He was widening streets, he was using better building materials that were less flammable, that kind of thing. But he also took the opportunity to build up like a brilliant new palace for himself called the Domus Aurea, the Golden House. So because people saw him doing this, (laughs) um, Tacitus tells us, um, rumours started going around in Rome that Nero had started the fire himself so he could rebuild Rome as he wanted. And in order to stop those rumours, Tacitus says that Nero found this group of people in Rome that were already a bit unpopular, pinpointed them for the fire and punished them in a very severe and disproportionate way. So he had in the gardens of of the palace that he was building, um, he opened them up and had people, sort of spectators in to watch, and he crucified Christians at night and then lit them up as burning torches or had wild animals attack them. So it was a really horrific account, a really horrendous account of the punishment of these Christians. Um, And Tacitus, in fact, says it was so horrendous. Even people who disliked the Christians still thought this punishment was disproportionate. They felt that Nero's cruelty was too much towards them. So not a particularly good starting point (laughs) for for Nero in terms of of Christian history. But why kind of historians find this a bit problematic, and there's been scholarship on this recently, um, a very good article in 2015 came out about this, was The fact that Tacitus is our first source for this so we don't have anything contemporary and Tacitus is really the only one like I say Suetonius mentions a little bit but not very much Um, and Tacitus gives us his full account but then Cassius Dio doesn't mention it at all the Christians at all so it's difficult (laughs) it's difficult in evidence in uh, evidence wise but that's the story that's Tacitus's story.
1: So Tacitus' story, as he said from there, it sounds like he uses the Christians as a scapegoat, as it were, for who started the great fire of Rome. And if this persecution did happen, if we believe Tacitus' story, or it happened to the extent that it did, were there any significant Christian figures who suffered in the persecution?
0: yeah so um and then we have a later tradition that emerges actually roughly contemporaneously with with tacitus sort of early second century bc that one of the people caught up in the fire in the the punishments of the fire was st peter the story went that st peter and, and this now we're switching to christian tradition so tacitus doesn't talk about this at all and, and the pagan historians don't but early Christian writers start to put this together, that St. Peter was in Rome during the fire and therefore that he was caught up in these punishments and was crucified on the site that we now have St. Peter's Basilica. So um, those familiar with with Rome will know uh, the beautiful, amazing St. Peter's Basilica. The original version of that (laughs) was built on the site that Peter was supposed to have been crucified in, in Rome. The other slightly less straightforward Christian figure to be caught up in this is St Paul. So again, kind of when we get to later Christian writings, St Paul also gets subsumed into this. But actually, uh, Christian writers, even fairly early ones, were starting to differentiate between the stories of Peter and Paul. And and Paul was arrested for inciting a riot and brought to Rome because he was a Roman citizen. So he had the right to be heard by the emperor if he wanted to be. So he asked to be taken to Caesar. This is according to Acts in the Bible. So um, this is what Acts tells us. So he was taken to Rome and then put in prison. Um, he was a Roman citizen, so he had the right to a trial and this sort of thing. And this wasn't caught up in the fire, but probably happened around the same sort of time. So if we think the um, the fire was 64, the Christians were probably punished around about sort of early 65. And then we think around about 67 was when Paul died is sort of scholarly consensus at the moment so that it's it's all kind of fairly uh, similar in terms of time scale but it's not that St Paul was crucified as part of the fire you know narrative he is beheaded later on because of a different incident but it's still a, a you know one of the founders of the Christian church meeting his end under Nero.
1: Well I guess it shows that Nero didn't have a vague relationship with the Christians then. Um, well, <laughs> actually, that was fascinating what you just said about Acts just there. Does Acts say the emperor in it? And can we infer from that that the emperor is Nero?
0: They, co- they call him Caesar, yes. So when you say, you know, you're taken to Caesar, that's whomever the emperor is at that point, and that, that would have been Nero. So um, And with the timeline as well, if you think of Christ died in the 31, 132, somewhere around there. And then you have um, the narrative of St. Paul's conversion. And so if you kind of put the timeline together, you know, modern theologians and historians sort of, you know, have pieced that together in that way as well. Um, They've been on St. Peter in Rome scholarship recently, um, some brilliant scholarship um, coming out of Germany as well that has, I think, quite conclusively or, or substantially proved that Peter never went to Rome and wasn't in Rome during that period. But Really, the, the reality of this is less important for how Nero ended up um, being looked at in Christian history, because, like I said before, all of these traditions were being kind of created and solidified later anyway in the second century. None of this is contemporary with, with Nero um, in terms of its history and literature.
1: Fascinating. So let's go on to the topic of the Antichrist itself in the New Testament. First of all, whereabouts in the New Testament do we hear about the Antichrist?
0: Right so the word antichrist in and of itself so that word antichrist is only actually used in one book of the New Testament and that's the letters of John so um the the first and second um letters of John and they talk about either an antichrist or antichrists so like the false prophets basically um that that are going to come about at the time of the end times and then uh cause that division between good and evil where you can get then the final final judgment on earth so that's the only place where that word antichrist is used but we also have kind of antichrist figures apocalyptic figures in paul's second letter to the thessalonians where we have a man of lawlessness and a mystery of iniquity and that is um, seen by early christian um, commentators from you know the second century onwards as being antichrist literature if you like they they talk about the two together and then we also have the first beast in the book of revelation which is perhaps the most famous sort of antichrist figure um if you like because revelation is now a very widely read book in antiquity revelation was very controversial um it it was deemed very difficult in terms of putting it into the canon because it was so it's so difficult to understand (laughs) it's a really uh, difficult book to read and Eusebius who was one of the um, very influential church fathers didn't like Revelation so um, it was canonized eventually in in the fourth century but um, it had a bit of a tricky relationship with some of the earliest um, Christian writers and some of the most influential Christian writers but certainly since then and, and to now the first beast in Revelation is very clearly um, you know, seen as a, an Antichrist figure. So those are the key kind of parts of the Bible that are used from about the third century onwards to say Nero was the Antichrist. So the one that comes up the least is are the letters of John, then Paul's two Thessalonians, and then Revelation is the most popular by, by far.
1: Yeah, so, so how have scholars tried to associate these creatures with Nero in the New Testament?
0: So this is really interesting, because on the one hand, you've got um, the biographies of Nero from people like Tacitus and Suetonius and Cassius Dio, who attributes so many kind of tyrannical ideas and and motifs to Nero so he's a murderer he's destructive in in terms of you know perhaps burning Rome and Suetonius blames him very firmly for burning Rome he does think it's him um he's he's destructive he's murderous he's deceptive um if you think of of Nero in Tacitus and Suetonius he's quite a theatrical emperor but with being a Theatrical person, you're also lying a lot because no one can really understand what you're thinking or what you're doing, and you're going to change on a whim. You might say one thing that mean another thing. Those kind of attributes also fit very well with 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 an antichrist. Um, The very fact that he is pagan, in inverted commas, in that he followed you know traditional Greco-Roman religion is then for Christianity a problem. Um, That's not unique to Nero, of course, but when you kind of marry all of these things together, the idea that he was a zealot um, you know, zealous about about pagan religion, which um, you know doesn't actually come through particularly in the sources, but you can you can kind of use it anyway. That he was destructive. That he murdered his family. That he murdered people in Rome. Um, but, you know, all of those things together fit very nicely with the idea of what an antichrist will be like from the man of lawlessness or revelation, the sort of destruction and the falseness, the false prophet of revelations, first beast, Um, Nero was seen as, as fitting quite nicely with. But um, so there's that, but the other, the thing that I also find fascinating about what Christian writers from sort of the third to the fifth centuries do is that then they also take things that aren't necessarily in the New Testament and say well this is further evidence so Nero was a sexual deviant or he um you know those kinds of things so he had lots of affairs with women and men and you know those kinds of attributes of him and, and also his theatre the fact that he liked to act on stage and he was a liar player and he was a chariot racer those things would have been controversial for their converted audience people who grew up knowing these stories these roman stories who were perhaps new converts or or uh, new in their family to Christianity. It works both ways. So he works very nicely as a um, an antichrist because of the destructive elements. But they could also bring this in and say, well, you know this about Nero already. You know he's a sexual deviant. You know that he's a theatrical emperor. These are not things that people, are, you know, Roman elites are supposed to be. So they were quite clever, I think. And they used all of it to, to sort of bring together this this idea about Nero.
1: Forgive my ignorance, what are the qualities of this beast in the New Testament, this first beast?
0: So the first beast is um, created, is the spawn of the devil, basically the devil figure in the dragon in, in Revelation. And he will appear at the time, the beast will appear at the time of the um, of the end times, of the uh, you know, precursor to the apocalypse, as it were. And he will be a king and people will worship him and people will follow him because he's a false prophet so the idea is that he will be a ruler and people won't realize necessarily but then those who follow him um, when we get to the time of, of the apocalypse and the resurrection of christ the people who followed um, nero who believe in the false prophet to continue to believe in the false prophet will receive the mark of the beast and the mark of the beast is 666 so that's the role that, that the first beast has in Revelation. Then eventually he will be destroyed and he will die in the lake of fire, be thrown into the lake of fire. And um, he also rides, sorry, lots of imagery here, rides on the Whore of Babylon. So in Revelation, um, you also have the Whore of Babylon, who's normally thought to kind of you know represent Rome and its decadence and that sort of thing. So that sort of marries on, according to later writers there as well.
1: But you would argue then that the early Christians, they didn't fear Nero returning from the dead, as it were, as this Antichrist figure, as this beast.
0: Yeah, so this might sound odd. (laughs) I understand that. It might sound odd that I don't think that Nero uh, would necessarily be something someone that, you know, a lot of Christians feared in the first century because of what I've just told you about Tacitus' account and everything else. So bear with me. Basically if we want to if we want in the first century so in in he was um, Emperor from 54 to 68 if we want to think that Christians in this period and in its immediate aftermath so sort of you know the 70s um, ish ad um, that enough Christians across the Roman Empire so if I if I kind of go back to where we started which is where Christian communities were um like i say the majority of them are in in the east and the um letters that are being addressed that have these um uh, antichrist figures in them the thessalonians right in greece and then you also have the seven churches of asia minor so monday turkey kind of that area um seven churches who are the addressees of revelation that's to whom john of patmos addresses it so we are talking about kind of understanding of, of christians in the east and The reason why I think it's difficult to say that John or Paul or whomever wrote these texts because actually it's it's tricky in terms of who these people were and whether they were who they said they were and that sort of thing, whoever wrote these texts wrote it with Nero specifically in mind that everybody should interpret these figures as Nero or that Nero is the most even the most obvious person to interpret these figures as I think is a little difficult because it means taking everything that someone like Tacitus or Suetonius says as exactly right. So as an exact representation of the historical figure of Nero, not only how he would have been thought of in Rome, but how he would have been thought of all the way across the other side of the empire in the East as well. And the reason why I find that difficult is because Nero was actually quite popular in the East. According to the non-literary, the archaeological evidence that we have, a statue was put up of him in the mid-2nd century AD in Traleys, long after he was gone, um, because, you know, clearly he still had a bit of popularity there. Um, historians talk about him thinking of fleeing to the East when he's, you know, realises that his time in Rome is coming to an end, he's been declared a public enemy by the Senate. His first thought, according to Suetonius, is, oh, I can go to Egypt, maybe you know, I'll be allowed to go and be a prefect in Egypt. But everyone in Rome has deserted him to such a point by that time. I don't want to kind of come across as someone who's saying Nero was a good guy and everyone just misunderstood him. I think there's lots of complexities there and and it's difficult to sort of, you know, I don't want to seem like I'm whitewashing um, Nero. But what I do want to pay more attention to, and I think is worth paying attention to when it comes to understanding the Antichrist problem, is how different people in the Roman Empire would have seen Nero differently. And because we have these stories about anecdotes and rumours going around in Rome, we can't assume that that is what people in the East understood. I know what the comeback to that is, it's, well, he killed Christians, surely. That's enough. And I get that. I understand that. And I, I agree with that. But what I don't think we should do with that, with what he did to Christians in the aftermath of the fire, is interpret that as a persecution in the way we think of persecution. So these Christians were killed for setting fire to Rome yes they were christians and that helped them be pinpointed for this but we're not talking about religious persecution the way we might think of it now and we're not talking about systematic persecution either this was a discrete group of people who suffered Horrifically, if Tacitus is to be believed, in Rome, but that doesn't necessarily mean that communities of Christians in the East would have expected that was coming their way. There were no edicts issued. This was not seen as something that was going to be empire wide in terms of persecution. And groups in Rome were <laughs> kind of killed by different emperors all the time for various reasons. All I mean is, I don't think that in this period, in the mid first century, mid to late first century, in the east of the Roman Empire, we necessarily need to think about Nero in the way that we're told about him in Tacitus and Suetonius and Cassius Dio. And what I found when researching this topic is the way in which scholars have thought about Nero as the Antichrist before is by looking at Tacitus, Suetonius, Cassius Dio, finding correlations in the descriptions, and then thinking about the Antichrist in Revelation and Paul's letters. And I just think it's a bit more complicated than that.
1: Of course, of course. And actually keeping on the East and actually keeping on the topic of resurrection, is it in in the history, I can't remember which source it is, but after Nero's death, they say in the East, maybe in Parthia, that there are these pseudo-Neros as it were
0: absolutely the false neros uh yeah definitely so these these come across all three of our sources actually so suetonius mentions one tacitus mentions two um there may have been three we're not quite sure whether suetonius is talking about the same one as as um, tacitus but um, and then also cassius dio later on mentions them um as well so this is something that you know is, is fairly consistent so this is the idea that after as i said when nero was kind of you know going through his death scene <laughs> in, in Rome, he thought, oh, maybe I could go over to Egypt and everything would be okay. We're then told by Tacitus Suetonius, Cass- well, uh, sorry, not Tacitus, because we've lost that bit. We've lost his death in Tacitus, unfortunately. But in Suetonius and Cassius Dario, we're told, no, Nero went to the villa of his freedmen. He um, heard kind of the Praetorian guard coming, and he had his freedman um, Epaphroditus help kill him, so he committed suicide with the help of a freedman. Um, He then had a very lavish funeral. Um, His funeral was paid for by the state um, and he was, you know, not in secrecy, he was taken up, he was given a proper funeral, um, you know, and all of that. So none of these historians are in any doubt that he died. But what did happen, was that rumours started coming to Rome in about the year after, so around about 69 AD, and then again, probably in the early 80s as well, the two that that we know of under the Emperor Titus, we think that may have been another um, version of this. But in the East, um, people had started to win supporters by saying that they were Nero. So like you said, someone in Parthia, um, which is the kind of empire that, that was on the east of the Roman Empire, that they were constantly fighting over territory in Armenia, that, that sort of thing under Nero, that they um, you know, came across into, into um, the Roman empire saying that they were Nero, building up some support. And the idea was that they were going to then come and claim the, the throne in Rome. Um, this was dealt with very quickly by the Roman army. <laughs> the go- a governor came across who was already in that area, came across, killed that person, body taken back to Rome, maybe just the head, it's not quite clear, but but body, parts of body, or body taken back to Rome, everyone said, oh yeah, it does look a bit like Nero. Um, and that's sort of, sort of the end of it. Um, so that this is a, a, you know, extraordinary, well, it's an extraordinary story. It's not extraordinary in that, this is the first time this had happened it's the first time it had happened with an emperor but um earlier on we'd had two members of of the imperial family or people close to the imperial family we've had people pretending to be them so agrippa the son of um agrippa the friend of Augustus. So um, Agrippa, the friend of Augustus, uh, married Augustus's daughter, Julia. They had children. The last of those children who actually was born after Agrippa's death was named Agrippa Posthumus. Um, When Agrippa Posthumus died, a slave pretended that Agrippa Posthumus was still alive and pretended to be him. Um, And we have another character called Drusus where there's a, a sort of similar misunderstanding or someone, you know, similar pretender. So is not the first, but so he is the first emperor to to have this um happen to him, but in a way that's used also by some of our sources as a testimony to how popular Nero still was in the east, that after his death he could use his name and people would follow you and um, so yeah, they they're fascinating stories
1: i mean i I brought it up mainly because this wants to kind of keep on this idea of the resurrection idea of the Antichrist in the Bible, could this possibly be? A historical basis on which later Christians pounce on—they use to try and further affirm their belief that he is going to come back, as it were.
0: Yes, absolutely. You're you're dead on <laughs> there. That's exactly what they do. This is a, a, another way in which um, Nero's kind of biography is is, is used, and obviously um, the real Nero had no idea about this, but um, you know the way his uh, the way his story is told. So this story then gets distorted. So in our text, in our historical text, Tacitus to Antonius and Cassius Dio, like I say, Nero has a funeral. No one is in actual doubt that he's died. Everyone's quite clear on that. These pretenders appear, people follow them because they want to help overthrow Rome, maybe something like that. But then, you know, killed quickly, done, fine. Everything goes back to normal. What happens in later Christian sources, Christian histories and uh, homilies as well, so kind of sermons that are preached, is that becomes a story of Nero dying and being resurrected. So not that he didn't die, which is what these stories say, he didn't die, he fled to the East, um, you know, and, and was there that's what people in Asia said they believed when they were following him. Uh, people in Rome, he was already dead. You know, that's fine. Those two things sort of get conflated and there's an idea that he he's died. He's been resurrected. He's come back as is told in you know the apocalypse, but also as mirrors, um, you know, Christ, the Christ story. So the expectation of a resurrection. So yeah, those things kind of match up very nicely to then give you a way of understanding it. Um, there are a few different interpretations actually, because, um, that's one. So Nero died and will come back at the time of the apocalypse in order to carry out his last role as the false prophet. Um, another um, source, lame, uh, another historian named Lactantius, says that Nero didn't die, but was spirited off to the heaven. To, uh, well, actually, kind of down maybe, but was taken away. No, uh, he was taken off. Um, this is all part of the divine plan. So he was taken off and he is going to be held somewhere until the time of the Apocalypse, until the end time so there are some variations going on with what the story is incidentally Lactantius doesn't believe it he thinks it's ridiculous (laughs) but um, others, uh, you know, other other people believe it and he says it's a very popular idea at his time but uh, certainly yeah, those stories get manipulated in a few different ways Um, sometimes he dies and he comes back, other times he goes away and is being held somewhere and will come back, other times he goes to the East, amasses followers and somehow gains some supernatural strength and comes back straight away. So there are a few different versions that start to appear, like I say, in in the later centuries. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring
1: our prices
0: wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit.
1: Ah, and just before we really go into these later centuries and when this Antichrist myth is really invented, you mentioned the number 666 earlier. What is the supposed link between Nero and this number?
0: Um, numerology, the idea that numbers can, can be used to stand in for letters is quite a common one in antiquity. We see it... Um, in Pompeian graffiti you know there are examples of it I love a girl whose number is I forgot what the number is now but a number you know is a way of disguising her name that kind of thing so it's used fairly straightforwardly or or regularly actually one of the things is it's not particularly straightforward (laughs) because of course um you know if you're not very clear about who you mean then there are lots of different ways that this can be interpreted so the way that Nero is seen to be tied to 666 is if you convert his name Nero Caesar to Neron Kaiser um and then convert that to Hebrew the letters in Hebrew add up to 666 so that's one way in which it can be it can be done um the slight problem then is also um and this may be more or less familiar to, to you and your listeners, but there was a change in the manuscript at some point, we think probably early second century, where 666 was changed to 616. I don't know if you come across that variation, that sometimes it's, it's the number of the beast is 616 and not 666. And that can also be used to, to spell Nero if you translate it to Greek instead of Hebrew. So there are different ways. But then you also get later on um, in another source um, in a Donatist text from the early fifth century named the Liber Genialogus. what they decide to do is put up Antichristus in Latin convert that to numbers, so A is one, etc. cetera, Antichristus in Latin, and then times that by the number of letters in Nero's name, but only using Nero, so not Nero Caesar, but just, and then that will give you 616. And then other people say 666 is actually a reference to light and not to Nero and someone who thinks of themselves as light. So it's, a, it's very complicated. <laughs> in, well, by which I mean they don't agree in terms of how to get to this. And you could also... Use similar kind of manipulations to make Julius Caesar be 666 or Caligula be 666 or more in more recent history, Mussolini 666. That was a very common one in the context of the post-war period. So there's lots of ways, and in the Middle Ages, and then the um, and then as a result of the Reformation as well, the Pope was often 666. So an unsuccessful Pope um, in the Catholic tradition, or then with the Reformation to try and to to talk about kind of the Pope as an Antichrist there's ways that 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 could work as well so it's been different in in different periods but certainly Nero is, is somewhat implicated in that early on
1: it's interesting how that number is associated with several figures throughout history not just one as it were so let's go on to the inventing well you believe the inventing of the Nero antichrist link in the third century is it the third century
0: yeah, so mid third century, um, probably. So um, uh, in this period, we get a poet named Commodian, who has sometimes been um, dated to the fifth century, but I think he was probably third because of, of um, the way that he's interpreting this particular story um, sort of seems to fit to me. But but even if, if he is fifth century, there's another um, person that we can firmly date to the, to the third century um, called um, Victorinus, Victorinus of, of Petau or Batovia. And he is actually writing the first commentary of Revelation. So um, if we think Revelation was maybe written, again, this date is very contested. So late first century, maybe early second century, but, but somewhere around that sort of time frame, In the mid third century, we get our first commentator focusing particularly you know, in detail on the text. So Commodian, going back to Commodian for a second, w- writes a poem, a, a very long poem in which he talks about apocalyptic scenarios, and he really channels revelation. So he's sort of putting revelation into a poetic context and he's expanding in some ways on what it says and what it doesn't say and and that sort of thing. And the thing is, Nero's name isn't in revelation. Caesar isn't in revelation, like we talked about it being in Acts. There is no, you know, it's not, not that straightforward. But what Commodian does is he puts Nero into his poem as that sort of character. So he talks about Nero, the one who punished Peter and Paul in, in Rome. Um, he will come back and return as the Antichrist, as, as the first beast in, in Revelation. <clears throat> Excuse me. So then he goes on to kind of furnish his poem with other motifs from Revelation and also other returning figures. Um, Enoch and Elijah, who are you know spirited away in in their story are are thought to come back and uh, and all sorts of of things like that so he's really interpreting this in a poetic context Victorinus is a little bit more straightforward thankfully Um, he is going through the chapters of Revelation and when he comes to the bit with the beast and the beast being wounded and um you know those sorts of things he says well this is Nero that's done it's Nero we're fine let's move on um, he doesn't when he gets to 666 he's one of the ones that starts to talk about this as being light um about uh, light and leadership he doesn't talk about Nero in that context but he does say kind of the first beast is 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 Nero so that's our first kind of bit where this is named this is like right we have an antichrist figure in the bible this is Nero. That's the first time we really get that in any sort of straightforward way. So that's the, the kind of start of it. And clearly it took off because um, the character I mentioned before, Lactantius, um, writing in the sort of early fourth century, late third, early fourth century, talks about how popular this has become. This idea has become. Many believe, he said, as he says, many crazed people believe, but <laughs> the de- delirium, but many believe that this is, this is Nero. Um, and then this sort of carries on in, in um, some, you know, texts that we have. Um, John Chrysostom, who is, um, you know, seen as quite a, an important Christian um, preacher and bishop, talks about this as well in relation to Paul in particular. So when he's interpreting Paul's two Thessalonians for his congregation, but also for a friend of his who writes to him, um, a woman actually, Algazia, writes to him and says, what do you make of this? He says, well, it is Nero, the man of lawlessness is Nero. And then we sort of come to the fifth century and um, Augustine writing in his City of God says we could think of, you know, people have thought of this as Nero, but this is wrong. You know, it isn't Nero. I Think more widely, this is the Roman Empire is how he interprets Paul. So, and that I sort of see as a bit of a shift because we do get some references to him. Nero is the Antichrist after that, including by one of Augustine's followers, Orosius, and another one. But... Augustine not buying into it is maybe a little bit of a, um, of a, of a sea change for, for that but we, we do have sort of two and a half centuries really where this is quite a, a, a you know popular idea and is really making the rounds in the east and the west of the empire as um, a way of interpreting um, Paul's two Thessalonians and um, Revelation and also John's letters um, a bit is spattered around here and there as well.
1: It's quite interesting if it was popular in the Eastern Mediterranean compared to what you were saying earlier when just after Nero's death he was seen as actually being very popular.
0: Yeah, there are there are fewer in the East than the West, <laughs> I have to say. Just, um, however, that I don't think that's necessarily because Nero is popular, because by this point, um, he's clearly that's clearly been been lost to some extent because cassius dio whom i mentioned earlier that that historian that roman pagan historian writing at the end of the second century beginning of the third century writes a horrific count of nero it's re- i mean he is a tyrant kind of doesn't mention the christians <laughs> but in every other way he is a sort of canonical sort of tyrant par excellence so um even though nero is still popular in the East, you know, in the aftermath of his death. And then, like I say, in the second century, we have evidence of this as well. Cassius Dio seems to, maybe he's railing against it. I think I would argue he's railing against that popularity to some extent. He doesn't want Nero to be seen as popular, but we have got kind of a a different idea. Nero has become more of a canonical tyrant by this this point. Um, Because he's at the end of a dynasty, because he is the last of the Julio Claudians, if you bring down a dynasty, it's not necessarily going to be a good thing for you in the history books. Think of Domitian, think of Commodus um, as well. They're not normally seen as particularly good emperors um, in, in later, later periods, once the tradition starts to settle. But in the first century, we, you know, while we don't have any contemporary accounts, we do have a historian named Josephus telling us they were good accounts and there were bad accounts. You know, there was this mixed range of things um it's just the by later periods it's the bad ones that kind of became the favorite ones and and survived
1: so over those three centuries as you were before augustine it's as if this this association is invented and it develops it gets more popular more popular more popular i find it also quite astonishing when we consider those three centuries when we consider some of the emperors like Diocletian, Decius, I think they're all, and they're persecuting the Christians, but it is Nero who is the one that they portray as the Antichrist.
0: Yeah, and this again is fascinating. This, I think, is because you have, Nero is the first, and this is so important. And as I was saying before, in terms of what actually happened in the first century, by the third century, that doesn't matter. This has become persecution. This has become the first persecution of the Christians. And that becomes incredibly powerful. So when Orosius, who uh, was one of um, Augustine's followers, when Orosius writes his, um, his universal history, so like a potted history of everything that happened from Adam and Eve through to his own time sort of thing, he talks about Nero as the first persecutor of the Christians. Then he talks about Domitian as a second persecutor of the Christians, the first after Nero. And then he relates every single person to their number and what number they are after Nero. So Decius the 10th, or Diocletian the 10th, I forget, but the ninth after Nero. So all of this goes through in relation to Nero. So that idea of him being the first is really important because also then the idea, um, there's a theological concept um, called millennialism which is particularly influential to Victorinus which is why I think this kind of emerges in the third century really actually millennialism um, dictates that the last will mirror the first there's this sort of reciprocal relationship so I think that's why despite the fact you have Decius like you say that is the first systematic persecution that is you know horrific and then you have Diocletian at the end of the third century uh, as well beginning of the fourth you know in the east in particular a mass widespread persecution the Christians, these still aren't seen in in the same apocalyptic role as Nero because Nero started it for these historians and commentators.
1: Gotcha. So because he's the first, he's the one mm. he's as it were, he's the end of his Judo Claudian dynasty, but he's the start of the Christian persecution dynasty.
0: Absolutely. We're very well picked, yeah, definitely.
1: There you go. <laughs> so going on from the invention, going on from those three centuries, you mentioned at the start how this idea is revived in is it the seventeenth and the eighteenth centuries?
0: Um, well you see kind of you do see smatterings of it in in um kind of medieval history and 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 later on there are um you know there are commentators on revelation who will still kind of talk about Nero but nothing new happens with it it's not developed in the way that it's really being developed I think in in the third to fifth centuries um where it really comes back to being developed and fleshed out properly again is actually the 19th century. So in the 19th century in England, but also there's a sort of crisis of Catholicism. There's a Pope that's quite, quite controversial um, Pope Pius. Um, and we've also got um, in in England as well in particular, the rise of um, what's called a papal aggression movement from about the 1850s. So um, we see a lot of pamphlets and and popular literature, which start again to really talk about the idea of Catholicism being the inheritor of paganism. catholic altar is is the pagan altar that that sort of association and how these are you know how catholicism is is not the form of christianity you should be following it should be protestantism or anglicanism as it was here um but also in this period to add to that context or to make this kind of you know more prescient um we have the sort of risings in england of a Anglo-Catholic movement. So this is what's known as the Oxford movement. Um, so people like John Henry Newman um, and Edward Pusey and, um, and and a few others. Um, so Oxford Dons essentially, who who start to write about why High Anglicanism. By by High Anglicanism, I mean something that is more. Uh, perhaps ritualistic than liberal evangelicism, that is the, the sort of counterpoint to, to, to that. Um, they start to write about the merits of high Anglicanism and, you know, and, and why this, this should be practiced and why Christianity should be practiced in these ways. But what actually they end up doing, um, John Henry Newman, of course, very famously becomes a cardinal, is convert to Catholicism. So we get some fairly prominent, at this stage, um, Anglo-Catholics who talk about the ritual of Roman Catholicism and see the value in that. and alongside this or in this environment then we start to get the revival of the nero antichrist idea because if you're fighting against the papal antichrist what you can do is say uh no look at your history books go back to your lectantius go back to your augustine go back to these people who are they saying is is the antichrist oh it's nero even if Augustine didn't believe it, he still says, you know, in the text, Nero is in there, so that's enough. Um, so Nero provides a very good alternative, a very, you know, a historically solid alternative in the context of this movement, in the context of Anglo-Catholicism and the Oxford movement um, in particular. Um, but it's actually a French um, intellectual and, and philosopher who fleshes this out properly again for the first time um, since late antiquity, since, you know, the 5th, 6th century. And that's Ernest and on. So he wrote a seven-volume history of Christianity, including a a very controversial life of of Jesus as well. Um, But the fourth volume of his history of Christianity is called The Antichrist, and it is entirely about Nero, entirely. So again, he is very clear that the first beast of Revelation, that is Nero. And we start to get, in this period, a confusion or a conflation actually between the idea that Nero will return as the antichrist which is what um, which is what is being said in late antiquity Nero will return at the time of the apocalypse to to bring forward um, the end times that gets conflated with Nero's reign being the reign of an antichrist so it gets put back into this sort of first century context almost. And again, the persecution is so important in this. And this particular idea is fleshed out even more in a two volume historical novel by a man named Frederick William Barry. He was Dean of Canterbury, um, who was actually better known for writing um, children's books. <laughs> um, Eric Little by Little is, is a very famous one. That he wrote a two-volume historical novel about Nero called Darkness and Dawn, or Scenes of the Days of Nero, which was set in Nero's reign, but was the apocalypse. And in his story, he has um, famous kind of victims of Nero from the historical tradition. So Nero is, is supposed to have killed his stepbrother, Britannicus, and um, caused the death of his wife, Octavia. She commits suicide because of um, her treatment by Nero. In Pharaoh's Darkness and Dawn, these people become Christians. He has Britannicus and Octavia convert to Christianity, um, and the person that is helping to convert them is John who wrote Revelation. So he mixes all of these things out, it's brilliant, it's a brilliant novel, it has footnotes, it's a novel with footnotes. <laughs> but he mixes all of these things together and mixes them all up to, to create this this historical novel, which is very popular in and of itself, but is even more popular because it then forms the basis, his novel is where Wilson Barrett gets the idea to write The Sign of the Cross, the play, The Sign of the Cross, and a Polish writer named Heinrich Sienkiewicz gets the idea to write Quo Vadis. And both of these novels that they write, based on Farah's Darkness at Dawn, are going to become big hits in the early film industry. So, um, Charles Lawton stars in the sign of the cross, big name, um, you know, Nero, and Peter Ustinov, of course, in the canonical kind of 1951 of course, version of Quo of course. Vardis, yep, <laughs> is right there. So, so, these become really popular. The the play and the novel, of course, are quite popular, but the films are, you know, they're, they're big Hollywood spectacles. Think of, you know, Quo Vadis was around the same sort of time as things like Cleopatra and, and, you know, that sort of thing. So the big Hollywood Roman epic spectacles, uh, Nero and the Christian story are in those. It's, he's there. So it's a really, uh, darkness and dawn has a lot to answer for.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's fascinating to say how it's, as it were, it survived into the twentieth century with covardis, as you say, now through the film industry.
0: Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So so the timing is, is brilliant. Um, you know, not for Nero, but for a historian, me, I like looking at it. But the timing is, is, is brilliant because you do get that the revival in the 19th century allows this then to go into the, you know, the popular literature and popular, um, uh, popular categories of entertainment. And one of the things about Quo Vadis, so in the, in the book, in Sienkiewicz's book, um, Nero is the Antichrist, he's spoken of as the Antichrist, he's called the Beast, Revelation is, is in there, Peter is in there, and he, he really does have that very clear Antichrist label in, in the book. That falls out a bit in the famous version of the film, in the 1950s version of the film. Nero is still dangerous, he's unpredictable, but he's also quite easily led, and, you know, a bit effeminate and, and other attributes that normally get put onto Nero away from the sort of Antichrist idea. But even then, when they were trying to sort of do a different kind of Nero for Quo Vardis, in the opening voiceover of the film, um, as they're kind of introducing the film and you've got the Roman army being, um, you know, the, the main character, Marcus Vinicius, is leading the Roman army back into Rome. The opening voiceover says, this is in the reign of the Antichrist known as Nero. So it's, it's there. You introduce the idea from the very beginning, but then the film gets to play on the lighter side of Nero to, to a big extent. But then, of course, it, it ends with Christians in an arena being eaten by lions. And that, you know, that that very famous um, scene of the film or almost eaten by lions for, for some of them because, uh, you know, they're rescued. But. Uh, and then the inevitable kind of death of nero but it is you know that that idea is is still informing it even if it's not leading those those film representations
1: indeed indeed and i guess to sum up can we say that all this derives ultimately from Commodian in the third century getting a bit ahead of himself and assigning <laughs> nero to the revelations in the beast
0: yes absolutely so commodian and victorinus perhaps it's all their fault and um, those are the earliest ones we have whether it it, it happened before that and um, there are there are hints of it before that in um uh, slightly problematic oracle texts. So um, the Sibylline oracles talk about, um, they, again, they never name Nero, but they talk about an emperor who is more easily identifiable as Nero because they say that he you know, liked to act on stage and that kind of thing, the sort of ideas that aren't in Revelation. Um, and that he is going to come back and be a destructive force, that sort of thing. But they, it's not quite the same because he's not dying and resurrected or any of those sorts of things. And these are probably sort of second century. So when those ideas are starting to, to be formed anyway so um yeah certainly it's all Comodian's fault with perhaps a little bit of blame pointed towards the Sibylline oracles way as well
1: <laughs> well comodian has got a lot of money for the hollywood film industry though so good <laughs> for him
0: absolutely
1: shushma that was fantastic uh, your book is called
0: the nero antichrist founding and fashioning a paradigm
1: there you go <laughs> shushma thank you so much for coming on the show
0: thank you so much for having me it's been brilliant thank you